This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Amanda Machaka on news, Nosile Zuma on economics and Musibudi Makura on sport. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Ministry of Health meets to deal with Ebola. 25 primary and secondary schools in Kenya have been set ablaze by unruly students over the past four weeks. And Sudan's Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok appoints the new leader of the Darfur rebel group Justice and Equality Movement, uh, Jibril Ibrahim. Right now though, it is time for your latest news bulletin. Here is Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The head of the World Health Organization mission, Peter Ben Emberich, says work to identify the origins of COVID-19 pointed to a natural reservoir in beds, but that it is unlikely that this happened in Wuhan. A team of international experts investigating the origins of COVID-19 have all dismissed a theory that the virus came from a laboratory. Emberich says it was extremely unlikely that the virus leaked from a lab in the Chinese city of Wuhan. The BBC's Stephen McDonald reports. We heard the Trump administration saying, without any proof I should add, that the coronavirus potentially escaped from a high security lab here which studies coronaviruses in bats. But no, we've not got to that yet. It's all been about the animal zoonotic theory. That is that somehow or other this coronavirus has come from an animal, perhaps via another animal into human beings. And they're speaking the most likely to be bats and pangolins, but also other animals like cats as seen to have been able to carry the virus. So they're saying they're not sure and that interestingly they're saying they can't find pre-December 2019 any evidence at all of widespread transmission in Wuhan. So it somehow or other started at that point and they're saying they can't track it back any further at the moment. The Democratic Republic of Congo has called for calm after it announced on Sunday a resurgence in Ebola and its troubled east after a woman died of the disease just three months after authorities declared the end of the country's latest outbreak. The World Health Organization said it had dispatched a team of epidemiologists to the scene of the latest death to investigate. North Kivu Provincial Minister of Health Eugene Zanzu Sialita said they were investigating if the latest latest case is linked to a previous outbreak. Ethiopia plans to close two camps in the northern state of Tigray that have been caught in the fighting between the state's former ruling party and the federal government, this according to the country's refugee agency. Speaking to journalists ahead of the Ethiopian Agency for Refugees and Retainees Affairs, Tisfe Gobeze said the proximity to the Eritrean borders and harsh geographical conditions are reasons for the decision to shut the camps. Nearly 100,000 Eritrean refugees lived in four camps in Tigray before fighting broke out in early November. Two of the camps that had more than 20,000 refugees have not been accessible for aid agencies recently. 
Mozambican authorities have warned of an upcoming cyclone that will affect the central provinces of Zambezia and Sofala and the southern province of Inambani. This will be Mozambique's third cyclone in the current rainy season after cyclones Chalanen and Eloise. Mozambicans have in the past been caught up in flooding despite warnings from the government to move to higher grounds. And finally, police in Myanmar have tried to disperse protesters gathered for the fourth day to express their anger at last week's army coup. Officers fired rubber bullets and used water cannons in the capital, Nepido. There are unconfirmed reports that live ammunition was also used. Tear was fired at demonstrators in Mandalay. The BBC's Jonathan Head reports. The one place where there wasn't a serious confrontation actually was in Yangon, where a very large crowd confronted the police for a large part of the day, but then dispersed peacefully. What we are seeing, though, is a a very gradual scaling up of the police response to this. The police were largely passive, did very little over the weekend and, and on Monday. Today, though, they're using more robust methods to try and disperse crowds, and we're now seeing shooting. The real question, though, is is that's just going to make people more angry and get more out on the streets. Is it going to stop the movement? In the past, sadly, in Myanmar, usually the military has stepped in in the end and used much more lethal force to try and break up these kinds of movements. For Channel Africa News, I am Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Ministry of Health experts held a strategic meeting to look into emergency actions to be taken for quickly controlling the new Ebola outbreak in the North Kivu province. This follows the death of a woman who had been in contact with at least 70 people three days after the first Ebola symptoms appeared. The new Ebola outbreak has come three months after the country's health authorities declared the end of the 11th epidemic. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The new Ebola outbreak that threatens once more the Democratic Republic of Congo's eastern province of North Kivu is the 12th epidemic of the kind in this country after the one that ended in the northwestern province of Equatorial last November. The wife of a farmer who had survived the disease died in a Butembo hospital last week on Wednesday, only three days after she first showed Ebola symptoms, according to the DRC Ministry of Health that said as well that a blood analysis has confirmed that the victim died from Ebola. Monday's meeting of the Ministry of Health brought together the government Ebola experts and both financial and technical partners. They tried to look into the means and ways to quickly control the new Ebola outbreak, according to Dr. Diedone Mwamba, director of the disease fight. A road map is to be made here while the province also has its response plan. All the partners will be part of the plan so that it can really show who does what. The plan will take into consideration the rapid control of the epidemic. The World Health Organization said in a statement that its epidemiologists were investigating that more than 70 contacts of the victim had been identified and that disinfection was underway on the site she was known to have visited. 
And indeed, the whole population of the North Kivu province has been called to get mobilized and involve themselves into the operation against this other Ebola that comes while the province is still facing both daily insecurity and COVID-19 pandemic. Kalin Zanzu Kasivita is the governor of the North Kivu province. The victim was buried in conditions that are not in line with the community security. I then call upon people's mobilization and usual collaboration of the North Kivu population for the response for us to identify all the contacts and make sure they are treated. I want all of us to get mobilized. The 10th Ebola outbreak that devastated the North Kivu province where it killed more than 2,000 people starting to August 2018 was this country's second worst on record. It was declared over in June last year. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. In Kenya, 25 primary and secondary schools have been set ablaze by unruly students over the past four weeks following reopening after a 10-month closure due to COVID-19 infection. As James Shimanyula reports, now the Kenyan government is considering reintroducing corporal punishment, which was abolished 20 years ago. The burning down of 25 primary and secondary schools has angered the Kenyan government which is considering reintroducing corporal punishment. Kenyan law restricts the use of school-based corporal punishment that was banned in schools in 2001. Here is a stern warning issued to unruly students by Kenya's Ministry of Education Administrative Secretary Zach Kinuthia. We shall treat you as a criminal and we shall take you through the procedure a criminal is undertaken by putting you in cell, taking you to court, and jailing you through the courts because of your behavior. Because you cannot bring down millions of worth investment and let you scot free. And this government is both your government and the government of the parents. You are impoverishing by burning down the property. And we shall take very stern action against you. Sounding another warning to unruly students in Kenyan schools is police spokesman Charlie Sowino. We need to remind the boys and girls that have maliciously destroying school properties that all persons aged 8 years and above are criminally liable for any criminal acts or omissions that they commit. They have a criminal responsibility as long as you are 8 years and above. Upon prosecution, your criminal records shall be kept by the criminal records office at the DCI for the rest of your life. This will definitely affect your future career prospects. It may be fitting to note that nearly three quarters of the 25 schools that were burned down were boarding schools. Now Secretary General of the Kenya National Union of Teachers, Wilson Sosioni, wants boarding schools to be abolished. It is time in this country that we abolish boarding schools completely and we make our public schools, day schools. As the students continue to burn schools in Kenya, Education Minister George Magoha says despite the law banning corporal punishment, the government may be compelled to reintroduce the punishment. I strongly believe that well-applied corporal punishment will instill discipline in our children. But there's a law. There's a law which passed that one. In our culture, it is okay to smack a child responsibly. 
But as a minister, I cannot make that pronouncement without due process. That was Kenya's Education Minister, George Magoha. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Sudan's Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has appointed the leader of the Darfur Rebel Group Justice and Equality Movement, the JEM, Jibril Ibrahim, as Finance Minister in a cabinet overhaul announced on Monday. The reshuffle comes as Hamdok struggles to push through reforms and secure foreign financing since uh, seen as crucial to easing a deep economic crisis and bolstering Sudan's transition to democracy. Hamdok, appointed after a military-civilian power-sharing deal after the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir, had led a cabinet of technocrats uh, that had an uneasy relationship with the military. For more on the new cabinet, Channel Africa spoke to Amir Suleiman, Sudanese lawyer and co-founder of the African Center for Justice and Peace Studies. After the uh, Juba agree, uh, peace agreement in 2020, uh, the parties of the agreement they agreed that they are going to change the cabinet and also they add uh, members to the Sudan Council. Um, and according to the agreement, this cabinet should be uh, announced by October. And now it is over delayed because of the consultation between all of the parties, including JEM, uh, which is Justice and uh, Equality Movement, other um, military movements, and Umma uh, Bharti, Ba'ath. Uh, party and um, national uh, Sudanese Congress Party and um, FFC. Uh, all of them, they, they uh, put uh, nominations for, for the new cabinet, and uh, which is announced uh, yesterday. Uh, first of all, from the first, from the observation, uh, we will find that some of the leaders of the uh, rebel the, um, military movement now they are taking some some. Some part of the cabinet. The reshuffle comes as uh, Abdallah Hamdok struggles to push through reforms and secure foreign financing that is seen as crucial to easing a deep economic crisis. Do you think this new step by Prime Minister Hamdok will woo foreign direct investment? Actually, according to his statement yesterday, he said he's expecting a current kind of $1 billion uh, assisting the Sudanese economy. He's saying that uh, now the the cabinet, it it includes uh, many partners and they can play a role to to push the Sudanese economy. And uh, it is a new blood within this uh, cabinet. And uh, maybe according to their contribution, maybe according to their uh, uh, work, that will help the Sudanese economy. But from my side or from the people in the ground there, uh, the, the economical crisis is, is, is too much and it is big. Uh, the dollar uh, exchange rate is, is, is going very high. The people need it. The, the, the prices is, is going also very high. Uh, so it needs at least time to to sort that issue, and um, we we don't think uh, changing the cabinet or hiring um, and nominating new cabinet that will sort the economic crisis recently or in a short time. Does the new expanded cabinet appointed by Prime Minister Hamdok indicate that there is now peace between the rebel groups and the transitional government? Uh, 
actually the 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 cabinet the old cabinet it was around 17 and now they are adding more now it is 25 uh that to include all of these rebels to to be part of uh to join the uh, the administrative part of the government but keeping in mind also we have two other major rebel movements they are they are still fighting and they are still in the ground which is Abdelaziz Al Hilo SPLM North in Kurdufar and also Abdel Wahid Nur SLA is in uh, Darfur still fighting so um this is a, a kind of sharing power sharing power not um, between the peace party more than um, it will help the situation the economical situation or politically in Sudan so it is it's, it's the same same what happened during the Shia time that they are uh, the, the rebels they join the government after a while then they left and they go back fighting and this thing this thing it needs a national solution it is not like that before when this revolution comes out uh, people they are they are agreed that the coming should be included professional and uh, technocrats, not uh, people with, uh, with any political background, and this is it, which was in the previous cabinet. But now this one is includes people with, uh, with the, they have their uh, political backgrounds, and most of them they are politicians. And uh, this is again one of the, uh, the demands of the Sudanese uh, revolution, uh, which which they are asking for the transitional government to be from this technocrat so to take us until we reach the election and then from there uh, all political parties they can join when they go for voting. How important is the appointment of Jibril Ibrahim, the leader of the Dafu rebel group Justice and Equality Movement as the finance minister in the new cabinet? Um, actually, this is the nomina- he was been nominated by his uh, his uh, rebel movement and uh, and uh, the Hamdok he accepted because I don't think he has any way to to reject it to the, to reject this uh, nomination and uh, but people also they have other concerns that he he don't have uh, any uh, background on these economical issues or to work as a finance minister. He's just uh, he's a politician. Uh, he's, um, uh, he don't have that kind of experience, and that may cause problems, more problems to the Sudanese economy in Sudan. And that's Amir Suleiman, Sudanese lawyer and co-founder of the African Center for Justice and Peace Studies, on the line from Kampala in Uganda, talking to Kumbelo Mujalele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. 
tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Somalia's political crisis has deepened after a coalition of opposition parties announced they no longer recognize President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, formerly known as Famajo, whose term expired with no political agreement on how to replace him. The alliance issued a statement calling for the creation of a transitional national council to govern the Horn of Africa nation until elections can be held. The coalition says it will not accept any effort to extend President Mohamed's term. More from Matthew Braden. He is the Horn of Africa expert at the Sahana Research Institute in Kenya. I suppose the, the most urgent crisis at this point is Somalia, where the president, uh, President Farmajo's term of office ended at midnight on the 7th of February. And um, he remains um, claiming to be the legitimate president of Somalia, whereas uh, some of Somalia's member states, federal member states, and uh, its opposition uh, have now refused to recognize him as president. Uh, this happening while an election that should have taken place uh, starting late last year um, has not taken place, and there is still no agreement as to when or how the election would happen. The most uh, pressing crisis right now uh, is that um, Somalia could find it not only without a functioning government, but there is a risk of a return to armed conflict if this isn't resolved in the immediate future. Now, are, are you confident at all that a compromise will be reached, um, given, of course, the fact that the talks to discuss the election model collapsed? No, I'm not confident at all that a, a solution will be reached as long as um, uh, President Farmaggio uh, remains um, involved in the political process. Essentially, um, he has no legal basis on which to claim the presidency. And it's not clear that he actually has a constituency inside the country anymore. Uh, the night that his presidency ended, Mokishu erupted into a kind of celebratory gunfire uh, that I personally haven't seen since um, the former dictator, Mohamed Siazare, was chased from the country in 1992. Um, so it's very clear that um, you know, much of the population, at least, would like to see him depart. Uh, it's really the international community that is insisting that uh, no no talks, no dialogue can go forward without him having a seat at the table. And uh, all of Somalia's federal member states and the opposition essentially are saying um, we've now met four times to try and resolve this, and every time it's the president who either disrupts the talks or walks away. So we need to find a solution without him now. And that's that's where the impasse lies. Uh, now, many Somalis, of course, had high hopes, uh, Matthew, uh, for Farmaja when he won his first term of presidency in 2017. But, of course, over the years, um, you know, we've seen uh, uh, the central government um, having tensions um, with the federal states, and uh, those tensions have increased. Um, is this a, a fair assessment, and, and, and where to from here? I think that is a fair statement. There was a lot of hope and goodwill when um, President Farmaggio took office four years ago, um, and expectations that um, he would take the country forward towards stability and prosperity. Um, what, what happened, I think, what's gone wrong is that um, he inherited uh, a government that is still not complete. Um, so 
Somalia has a provisional constitution. The architecture of the federation still has to be finalized the negotiation. And um, there's still no democratic or multi-party party electoral system in place, and that has to be also designed. Um, although President Farmaggio inherited an ongoing process from his predecessor, um, essentially he took things backwards. He undermined or started to dismantle the structure of the federation. He stopped negotiating or talking to the federal member states and interfered in their electoral processes to um, centralize power under his control, um, made no progress on reviewing the constitution, and um, basically usurped the authority of the, the provinces of the federal member states um, to the federal government. And so there's been growing disillusionment and frustration across the country with this sort of monopolistic approach, which is why I think now uh, he is, he's become such an unpopular leader. And uh, just uh, before we let you go, do you believe that uh, this political impasse um, at the moment could trigger violence? That's a very real risk, um, mainly because uh, what's called the Somali National Army and Somali National Police uh, have, have really lost a lot of their cohesion. Uh, they have some very professional officers and they've had some good training. But many of the units are clan-based and have already defected to the opposition um, and to members of parliament and senators who um, who challenge President Farmaggio. And uh, there are some other units that uh, are foreign-trained and, at least in the near term, could remain loyal to Farmaggio. So the danger is that um, even by accident, um, shots fired in the streets of Mogadishu could lead to an escalation and an inflammation of the situation. So I think the the frozen or the the impasse um, that prevents talks from happening in place because the international community insists uh, on President Farmaggio being part of the dialogue, um, I think needs to end. Uh, because every day that passes, there is a risk of violence uh, breaking out in the streets. That's Matthew Braden, Horn of Africa expert at the Sahan Research Institute, on the line from Nairobi, Kenya, talking to Zukona Miso. World Health Organization Chief Tedros Ghebreyesus says he will meet with the organization's strategic advisory group of experts on immunization, or SAGE, today. The meeting will discuss SAGE's recommendations on the use of AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. This comes as a result of recent study uh, which revealed that there was a minimum protection in mild to moderate infections of the 501YV2 strain, which was identified in South Africa. Gabriel Jesus says the organization will expand guidance to vaccine manufacturers and governments on changes needed to combat the mutating virus. Norma Bulani reports. The World Health Organization says that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine has shown efficacy against severe diseases to prevent hospitalization and death. South Africa's government has halted the rollout of the vaccination program to better understand how the vaccine reacts to the locally found strain. WHO Director Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus says that the AZ vaccine can be administered by countries to alleviate pressure on the hospital systems. He says, however, manufacturers of vaccines will have to continuously work on creating boosters to fight the mutations of the virus. We know viruses mutate and we know we have to be ready to adapt vaccines so they remain effective. This is what happens with flu, with flu vaccines. 
which are updated twice a year to match the dominant strains. WHO has an existing mechanism for tracking and evaluating variants of the virus that causes COVID-19. It's vital that countries continue to report these variants to WHO so we can coordinate global efforts to monitor their impact and advise countries accordingly. Gabriasis says there needs to be continuous clinical trials as new variants emerge to ensure that the vaccine development keeps up with mutation. To protect people before they're exposed to new variants, we also need to continue designing and conducting new trials. And we need to keep a close eye on the impact vaccines are having on epidemiology so we can use vaccines to maximum effect. Professor Salim Abdul-Karim, co-chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19, says they're now considering a staggered approach to the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine. One proposal that's currently being considered is to roll it out initially just in a stepped manner, where the first step includes about 100,000 individuals that are vaccinated, in which we monitor the hospitalization rates. If they are below the threshold that we are looking for, then we're confident that the vaccine is effective in in preventing hospitalization, and then we can roll it out. Gabriel says it was concerning that SA's vaccination program was temporarily halted, given that the data is based on a limited sample size. Meanwhile, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, Seth Berkeley, says that the coronavirus clinical trials need to be ongoing to allow for efficacy to be assessed over a prolonged period. The research should also be of scale and diversity to enable clear interpretations of the results. Gavi facilitates the acquisition and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines through WHO's COVAX facility. Berkeley says that the results from the continual trials will also better help coordinate which vaccine should be used for which population. We know that we need much better global genomic surveillance, and that has to be backed by rapid sharing of data to allow for the global coordination of response. Priority needs to be given to vaccinating high-risk groups everywhere to ensure maximum global protection against old and new strains and to minimize, as best as the vaccine can, the risk of transmission. Gavi CEO Seth Barkley uh, ending that report by Norma Bulani. It's now time for your latest news headlines. Here is Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. World Health Organization experts believe the most likely cause of the initial coronavirus outbreak was the virus jumping from an intermediary host species to humans. The Democratic Republic of Congo has called for calm after it announced on Sunday a resurgence of Ebola in its troubled east after a woman died of the disease just three months after authorities declared the end of the country's latest outbreak. And Mozambican authorities have warned of an upcoming cyclone that will affect the central provinces of Zambezia and Sofala and the southern province of Inambane. Those were news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. 
What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Social media has been a buzz in South Africa with people sharing their COVID-19 remedies and impact preventative measures such as ginger, zinc and cayenne pepper mixtures. This has been compounded by the misinformation about the vaccine, its efficacy and impact on health. Additionally, this has been escalated by the high volume of ginger and garlic purchase, which has led to the National Consumer Commission to commence investigations into several supermarkets in the country for alleged price gouging for ginger and garlic. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Arthur Ramroka, a nutritionist at Tiger Brands. Arthur, thank you very much for joining us. Good evening, Samora. Thank you for having me. Now, Arthur, at a time when COVID-19 cases continue to surge, is it only natural for people to look for various treatments and home remedies that can help keep the disease at bay? Yes, Samora. I think we have observed this unbalanced approach even before COVID-19 was here. Um, many months leading to, to, to winter, people always uh, go out and look for different remedies just to try and boost the immune system. And it's now even more relevant given the times that we're living in with the pandemic. We've seen uh, different community water groups or social media platforms, which are always about with COVID-19 prevention tips. And you've mentioned some of them, ginger, mixed with hot water and lemon, just to mention a few. And this is not certainly a sustainable approach to health and immunity. And are there nutritional deficiencies that South Africans are causing by heavily relying on some of these home remedies, such as zinc and cayenne pepper, every morning? Uh, yes, certainly not. And I think uh, what, what is important to note here is that one cannot rely on one food to provide a benefit. And uh, no, many of the social media uh, platforms, they continue to toad these uh, superfoods and miracle minerals uh, to work wonders on the body. But one should not prioritize a certain food over another in the hopes of boosting the immune system or the body's core functions. What we should be looking at is really a healthy balanced diet which will then provide us with different nutrients um, which uh, will then provide a benefit to the body because our immune system is really intricate and it has many connected systems and I think uh, it's a system in its truest sense so what we should be aiming for is to really support the body's function of the immune system so that it can build its own natural defenses. And Arthur, how important is it to debunk these uh, myths around the impact of these COVID-19 home remedies? 
it is absolutely critical because we know um, people like you indicating that they went out, you know, to buy and, and buy a lot of ginger and they, they shouldn't. And not to say that uh, ginger or other forms other types of foods that are actually buying, they're not good. They do have a benefit. Take ginger, for example. It does help with reducing inflammation and improving digestive well-being or turmeric, also containing anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. I think people just need to be informed and educated uh, so that they do not think that taking these items in access will actually shield against different diseases. Um, so it is important to provide reliable Sources and make them available to all you know, communities, all people, so that they are coming. We come from a place of being informed, so that whatever um, um, food items we consider on our plate is one that is going to actually uh, support us in our sustainable eating, more than just uh, looking at a shotgun approach. And what is the role of nutrition in combating illness, especially when one has lifestyle-related illnesses such as hypertension, cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, eating healthy and adopting a generally healthy lifestyle will help prevent and control obesity and, and lifestyle diseases. And this is important because these conditions are major receptors for people with uh, COVID-19. And we've seen in, in the media and the news that uh, non-communicable diseases um, or comorbidities are also associated with the severity of COVID-19 symptoms. So it is important to adopt um, a healthy diet and a lifestyle and if you're living with some of these conditions, it is important to continue with the, the treatment that you've been put on, but also adopting healthy eating and exercise as well. All right. Uh, Arthur, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Laura. Have a good one. Bye. You too. And that was Arthur Ramroka, a nutritionist at Tiger Brands in South Africa, joining us on the line. The COVID-19 pandemic has put e-commerce at the forefront, therefore accelerating digital banking. Economists say the growth of e-commerce has also contributed to an increase in digital financial services and consumers' banking and spending habits have had a rapidly evolving um, need in order to navigate the landscape of a disrupted economy which has necessitated the migration to digital consumption. Ntantla Matlangu reports. In March 2020, the South African government implemented a nationwide lockdown to slow the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Under the circumstances, South African consumers needed to find new, safer ways to shop and do banking. As the country continues to witness unprecedented increases in e-commerce and digital banking uptake, Banking Group APSA has launched a technology-led, incentive-based digital adoption program that prioritizes internet security and getting consumers to adopt positive digital behaviors. APSA Advantage rewards consumers for good banking behavior. Speaking at the virtual launch of the program, Ari Rittenberg, the chief executive officer of APSA Retail and Business Banking, says the rapid shift to digital banking during COVID-19 has accelerated the banks and payments providers to boost innovation. Thank you. 
Tech expert Musa Kalenga says the banking industry and many companies are embracing e-commerce as a means of expanding markets, improving customer service, reducing costs and enhancing productivity. Experts say that while banks have long been encouraging consumers to use digital channels for transactional banking activity, there was no way to predict how aggressively that trend would accelerate as a result of COVID-19. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Kandla Matlangu in Johannesburg. The Grade 7 results have shown that COVID-19 wreaked havoc in the education sector as most schools were closed for the greater part of the year. While the government blamed the striking teachers, the teachers' unions pointed their guns to the president, Emerson Nagwagwa's administration, for its failure to deal with the salary issue. Online lessons, on one hand, were only attended by a small fraction who were in private schools since the lowest pass rate in many years. Simon Muchema reporting from Harare. Following the release of Grade 7 results indicating the worst pass rate ever, the Zimbabwean government has been blamed for its relaxed approach towards dealing with challenges affecting the education sector. The 2020 national pass rate was 37.11%, which is lower than the 2019 national pass rate, which was 46.9%. What came as a shock is the 0% pass rate in most schools, especially in the Matebeleland provinces. A debate ensued over the weekend regarding the results with the majority of citizens blaming government for its casual approach towards dealing with the teachers' salaries. Some, however, indicated that COVID-19 forced the closure of schools for the greater part of the year, hence children were robbed of their learning time. Robson Chere, the General Secretary of the Amalgamated Rural Teachers' Union of Zimbabwe, had this to say. We do have a number of factors which led to the uh, low pass rate in, in Zimbabwe school, especially on the grade 7 results. Uh, here we are talking about an education which was already under crisis. The education sector was under crisis due to uh, a number of issues. We talk about incapacitation of teachers since the beginning of last year in January. Learners had no time, uh, proper learning time uh, during the first term. And also now the pandemic came and schools uh, closed prematurely in March. So there was also a limited time of learning where, where learners were even learning with the limited learning resources. And we are taking into consideration the, um, the rural schools. And that early closure of school uh, does not give learners a chance to complete their, their syllabus. 
since they had no access to any other alternative uh, ways of, of learning. Chere said students did not finish their syllabus. And our government introduced an exam at a time where learners were not prepared to, uh, to write those examinations simply for the mere fact that they, they did not complete their learning areas and they did not complete their learning syllabus. So there was an ill tam- timing of, uh, of examination which was a sort of a, a command approach taken by the government in terms of uh, forcing our learners to write examination. And so we see that uh, our learners were not prepared to take the, uh, to take the examination. And there's also a limited uh, learning infrastructure, especially in, in rural areas, where we still have makeshift classrooms and also even uh, bush learning, some learners learning under the tree, some using disused tobacco bands, uh, as teachers, those are some of the factors which uh, also lead to dismal performance of our learners in the uh, 2020 grade 7 results. While noting that the COVID-19 pandemic had severely affected learning in schools, online lessons were introduced, but this only helped just a few elite students with resources online learning can be uh, of paramount importance but at the moment it becomes a, a, a very difficult challenge especially in our context in the zimbabwe if we are, want to take it as an alternative educational module uh, the main challenge with online learning is that uh, it is not inclusive uh, it is not inclusive in the essence that uh, we, we we have uh, especially in the rural communities where the majority on almost more than 90 percent of the population uh, do not have access to to online uh, to online learning due to uh, the unavailability of material itself we talk about even technology the gadgets that was robson chere the amalgamated teachers union of zimbabwe general secretary speaking to channel africa meanwhile parents are also bitter that the government chose to reopen schools yet the online resources were not adequate. Uh, what it really it shows is that only private schools and also uh, parents that are that, that are well to do, those with the capacity to hold uh, those online lessons, managed to to galvanize something from this uh, uh, grade seven result. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. It's time for your economics news with Nusitle Zuma. Chabu ino munghani zatu zajuma tentiambe ndi nkani zajuma zojirika mziko la South Africa. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. South Africa's power utility ASCOM says the power generation system is still severely constrained due to high generation unit breakdowns during the past two days, as well as the delayed return to service of some units out of unplanned maintenance. The power utility announced earlier it will implement load shedding from 10 o'clock on Tuesday until 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock on Wednesday morning, Central African time. ESCOM spokesperson Sigonati Majanda says this is necessary necessary in order to preserve the thrip replenish the emergency generation reserves and to maximize the capacity available during the daytime hours. 
we currently have 4,000 megawatts of unplanned maintenance, while another 14,300 megawatts of capacity is unavailable due to breakdowns and delays. ESCOM expects some of these units to return to service from tomorrow, and we will continuously assess the situation. As previously communicated, ESCOM continues to implement the reliability maintenance during this period, and as such, the system will continue to be constrained with the risk of load shedding remaining elevated. Role players in the South African tourism industry say more needs to be done to ensure safety in the sector. CEO of South African Tourism, Sisan Jonas, says it's important to promote domestic tourism, which is going to be the bread and butter of the industry going forward. He believes there needs to be more engagement about safety and that precautionary measures should be adhered to. Jonah is part of a delegation that is visiting the Northwest Province to assess the impact of the COVID-19 on the tourism sector. We want people to travel, but we want them to travel safe. And here's where sometimes the two clash. The virus needs people to move in order for it to spread. What we are adding on is to say, yes, we want people to move, but we want them to observe protocols. We are looking at two levels, both at establishments such as these, to make sure that all of the safety protocols are adhered to. Equally so, it's also about an informed traveler, so they can make informed decisions and start to demand why is the mask not wearing. Why is the sanitizer not here? Why is there no social distancing? So it's about building that activism in every single one of us. South Africa's Labour Federation, COSATE, has emphasized the importance of the State of the Nation Address, partly focusing on the rebuilding of the state-owned enterprises. President Cyril Ramaphosa is due to deliver the SONO on Thursday at 7 p.m. Central African time with the theme following up on our commitment, making your future work better. COSATE spokesperson Cizwe Pamela says they expect government to outline solutions and goals that are possible for the country to work towards. Let's talk about the SOEs, for example. This is an area that is disappointing for us because no one has presented a coherent strategy of how to fix them, how to turn them around, identify the strategic ones, and also just give workers a sense that someone is doing something to save their jobs and also just rescue these companies. So these are some of the things that we are demanding that the president focus on. Singapore Airlines LTD says it would defer over $4 billion of spending on Airbus, SE and Boeing co-planes after reaching agreements with the aircraft manufacturers to delay deliveries. In a statement, the airline said it will convert 14 of its Boeing 787-10 orders to 11 additional 777-9s to meet its fleet needs beyond the financial year ending in March 2026. Singapore Airlines chief executive says the agreement with Airbus and Boeing are a key plank on the airline's strategy to navigate the disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, the European Union is due next week to set out a future trade policy designed to help it deal with partners it does not trust. Enforcement of global rules and ensuring equal market access will be cornerstone of a new strategy to be unveiled by the European Commission that is strikingly harder in tone than the trade for all mantra of last revamp in 2015. As coordinator for the 27 EU countries, the Commission wants trade to support 
support a green and digital recovery while also stressing greater resilience to a future pandemic and fair players, the so-called level playing field, demand that became such a bone of contention in its post-Brexit talk with Britain. For financial indicators, one US dollar is trading at 379.64 Nigerian Naira, 1081 Botswana Bula, 109.71 Kenyan Shilling, and 21.48 Zambian Guacha. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosikizuma. Now time for your latest sport. Here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. The Football Association of Zambia has announced that the national women's football team's trip to Turkey for an eight-nation invitational tournament has been cancelled following challenges posed by the COVID-19 situation. Now, members of the team underwent some COVID-19 tests with the results putting the trip into jeopardy. Now, FAS's General Secretary Adrian Kalasha, um, Kashala says the trip has been put on rather put off on medical grounds, but uh, he says preparations for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games will still continue despite all this. Now, Kashala says Faz has learned lessons from the chilly outing for the Copper Queens that saw some players and staff members endure prolonged isolation due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Alali head coach Peter Mosimani remains proud of his side despite Monday's FIFA Club World Cup semi-final 2-0 defeat by Bayern Munich as the Red Devils were dispatched by the European champions. Now Rob, um, Robert, um, um, Robert um, Lewandowski's brace um, fired the European champions into the final of the tournament in what was Musmani's first defeat while in charge of the Egyptians in 23 matches. The former Mamelodi Sundowns head coach does not see the defeat as a major setback in what is his second shot at the tournament, having overseen some South African side Mamlodi Sundowns' campaign in Japan in 2016. Mosumani shares his thoughts on the match. Yeah, a very difficult game for us. Uh, played a very good team. You understand why they're number one in the world at this point in time, and number one in Europe also. Um, yeah, they, they denied us to have the ball. Yeah, uh, when we are the best in the continent, you always have to try and see how far are you with Europe. And I think tonight, that's the difference to say how far are we with Europe at the moment. 
Na Ali will pay Copa Libertadores champions Palmares in the fight for a bronze medal on Thursday, while the final between Bayern Munich and Tigris UANL will also take place on Thursday at the Education City Stadium. Kickoff is at 8 p.m. Central African time. On to basketball news, the Nigeria technical crew has extended invitation to 12 players for the final phase of camping ahead of the 2021 FIBA AfroBasket qualifiers to be held from the 17th up until the 21st of February in Tunisia and in Cameroon. Channel Africa's Tony Oban reports from Lagos. With Nigeria sitting comfortably atop Group B after beating Rwanda, Mali and South Sudan, all eyes will be focused on the reverse fixtures which will be hosted in Tunisia. Nigerians are expected to be treated to champion basketball when the players converge on Monasti for a third window after six players from France were handed a call-up. Ife Oluwa Ajaye, Hemin Nons, Said Hairs, Okpalanaka, Antibas, Wachuku Moneke may make their international debut for Nigeria after they were handed an invitation alongside a member of the 2017 Afro Basketball Silver winning team, Ikewa Mokoled, who are all based in France. Meanwhile, Rwanda's national men's basketball team will take on Egypt and Tunisia in warm-up matches as part of their preparations for the upcoming Afro-Basket qualifiers. The friendly matches will take place in Monastir, Tunisia this weekend. The Rwanda national team is expected to jet out of Tunisia on Thursday. And uh, finally, in tennis news, world number two Rafael Nadal began his bid for a men's record 21st Grand Slam title with a straight-set victory over Laszlo Dejere at the Australian Open earlier on Tuesday. The Spaniard did not play in the ATP Cup last week after struggling with a back injury, but he moved well in a 6-3, 6-4, 6-1 victory over his Serbian opponent, Russian fourth seed Daniel Medvedev, and compatriot Andrei Rublev also advanced on the second day at Melbourne Park. Meanwhile, in the women's game, world number one Ashley Barty took just 44 minutes and did not drop a game as she defeated Danka Kovinic, 6-love, six 6-love, six and a ruthless display to reach the Australia Open second round while defending champion Sophia Keenan made a nervous start and was in tears before a 7-5, 6-4 win over Australian wildcard Madison Inglis. Meanwhile, uh, former champion Victoria Azarenka has been knocked out of the tournament. The Belarusian who won the title back in 2013 and in 2012 um, seemed to struggle with her breathing and needed an inhaler in a 7-5, 6-4 defeat by Jessica Pujela. Those are sports news at the Sour. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time. Taking us to the top of the hour is Jigijela by Tandis Homazwai. See you later.
across the globe every 